When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. With June heating up, we are going to be posting a lot of interviews this month, and I anticipate a lot of interviews coming in July and August as well. I'm about to start a blitz of travel, largely to do conservation-related stuff and a little bit to do conferences, and to fill periods of time where I'm not in town here in my home base, I will be populating the show with interviews. This week, I'm going to be publishing, today including... An interview with Matthew Foldy. Tomorrow, I'll have an interview with Cody McLaughlin, my friend, to give us an Alaska update. And you heard it here first. We're going to be revisited by Senator Steve Daines of Montana. We're going to talk about all things great outdoors, trending conservation legislation, and what is on his mind. And that is going to come out next Monday to fill the whole week because I'm going to be in Oklahoma for Professional Outdoor Media Association's annual business conference. I hope to see many of you in Tulsa in the Broken Arrow area. Should be a fun time. I will have a report and analysis of that event. Hopefully some interviews to come from that occasion. We like to always record interviews at that conference and I hope to snag some conversations with friends in attendance, newsmakers in attendance. As for today's guest, we have Matthew Foldy. He is now with The Spectator and he has a very interesting piece about kind of a largely non-controversial figure, at least on the surface, one of the cabinet members who is from President Obama's time, uh, Tom Vilsack. He is agriculture secretary. He served much of Obama's term in the same position. Now he's back in the capacity. He's kind of seen as a moderate, a bridge builder, but he has some questionable ties with a very far left advocacy group, Arabella Advisors, and one individual there. And Matthew's going to break down the story what has been on his mind in terms of covering this administration and some of the scandals that are dominating the energy department and elsewhere, and how reporters should cover these issues objectively and fairly and not be so settled in just agreeing with things and not questioning certain policies, preservationist policies. So I'm going to let Matthew Foldy take it away from here. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for more interviews. Foldy, welcome back to District of Conservation. Glad to have you talk about your latest report. Always good to be back with you. Could you explain what is happening with Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack and a dark money group called Arabella Advisors? And why should conservationists and even those who are not in conservation be concerned about this connection you've unearthed? So I, I know that most people don't think of the Department of Agriculture all that often. And most people probably don't even know who our agriculture secretary is. And think of that sort of in contrast with the Department of Transportation, where you have to be really terrible at your job, like Pete Buttigieg is now, for people to know who the Department, uh, who the Secretary of Agriculture is. 
or Secretary of Transportation is. And I would say I'd pose rhetorically uh, to your listeners who was, for example, the Trump admin Secretary of Agriculture. Now, most of your listeners probably do know this. Most people probably don't know. It's Sonny not Purdue. Even- yeah. Exactly. Likewise here, I'd say most people don't know who Tom Vilsack is. He's obviously our Secretary of Agriculture. But I'd say that amongst those who do, a lot of them, I'd say a decent amount of them have this perception of him that I would say is not grounded in reality. And that is, he was a long-term former governor of Iowa, obviously very agriculture heavy state. And uh, his confirmation process was relatively smooth, uncontroversial, didn't really kind of ruffle any feathers. And a lot of Republicans, I think, seem to view him as an ally in various things. And, you know, it's possible that he's more of an ally than Pete Buttigieg is or Deb Holland is or someone like that. But what I was uh, reporting on last week shows that there's definitely a big cause for concern with who he is spending a lot of his time dealing with. And I think there are a lot of questions that this raises as far as improper lobbying of Bill Sack by, as you said, uh, Arabella Advisors, which is another organization and its president, Eric Kessler, is someone who also flies under the radar, which is how they like it. But I think of Arabella Advisors as best being described as sort of like an iceberg in the Democratic Party. You see a little bit of what they do above the surface, and then most of what they do uh, happens under the water, like what I wrote about. So to bring everyone into uh, the conversation there, um, Eric Kessler and Tom Vilsack have been exclusively and extensively corresponding on a ton of various projects. I want to read this one email, for example, that shows how closely they work together. Tom Vilsack, and we know this from FOIAs that a great group, Americans for Public Trust, obtained. Tom Vilsack at uh, 1.48 p.m. on July 15th, 2021, emailed several high-ranking Department of Agriculture staff. Okay, that's not out of the question. That's not unusual. And Eric Kessler. Eric Kessler is importantly the only non-Department of Agriculture employee on this and many other emails from uh, Tom Vilsack. Gentlemen, the subject line is random thoughts. Uh, Tom Vilsack emails like a boomer. Gentlemen, woke up very early this morning thinking about the processing project you are helping to direct and lead. I can tell from the response I have received to date, there is excitement over the possibility of this helping to create a more dynamic and competitive market. So uh, Eric Kessler and Arabella, neither Kessler nor Arabella are registered lobbyists. But as you see from a ton of these emails that are going back and forth, uh, including emails that obviously Eric Kessler sends to Vilsack, he's basically lobbying as far as you or I would use that term. He's lobbying the Department of Agriculture, in which he has substantial and material interests. Arabella has a good food program. Um, so, okay, that's that's kind of setting the stage for our conversation. Right, yeah, that is interesting because I don't know if listeners know, and I think you know this too, Vilsack was actually Obama's ag secretary, I think for both terms, uh, or for most of the duration of the Obama administration. He's like one of the steady kind of people who can cruise through um, nomination processes. And then he can also stay in a long place because of his perceived moderate kind of credentials and his willingness or not willingness, but rather um, amenability to work with Republicans in these flyover states because he's a former governor, like you said, of a flyover state. 
And you mentioned this good food program. Could you explain what that is and how is the agriculture department entangled with that? Sure. So, um, yeah, to, and to go back, let's, let's set the stage even more. Uh, we know from when Tom Vilsack was leaving the Obama administration, one of his biggest fans as, you know, kind of like the send off in the media that he was getting was none other than Eric Kessler. So let me just pull up this quote in 2017, uh, as Vilsack was leaving, Kessler was raving about Tom Vilsack's record, how closely they, you know, work together on things like that. So what Good Food is basically Arabella Advisors runs its own for-profit thing called its Good Food Initiative. And what the Good Food Initiative is, is it wants, you know, three things. It wants a culture that demands good food, an infrastructure that supplies good food to meet that demand, and a policy environment that enables a good food system to take root. So you can see very quickly how when um, he is emailing Tom Vilsack about food policy, agriculture policy, this is definitely going to be helping the good food initiative. And I would say if it's not, Eric Kessler is probably bad at his job, right? If you have this access to the agriculture secretary and you're running a good food initiative, you know, you're not good at your job if you're not helping that. And there is, I would say, a direct connection between the emails between Vilsack and Kessler and government action, which obviously looks like very successful unregistered lobbying. So we know that the emails seem to have led to an event in January of last year at the White House with Biden, Vilsack, and Attorney General Merrick Garland. They were announcing steps that the Biden administration was taking to increase processing options for farmers and ranchers. This is the kind of policy um, you know, that Kessler would love. Vilsack emails Kessler, again, we know this through um, these FOIAs, saying that the president was extremely appreciative of your effort. Uh, Kessler replied to that, saying that the event was tremendous and portends even more collaboration in the future. So it's not just that they're, you know, kind of trading thoughts back and forth. It's also that these are leading to government action. And then the final point to me that's important is that this is a level of access that normal farmers and even agricultural lobbyists don't have themselves. So for the story that I wrote, Don Bacon, who's an amazing congressman from Nebraska, he's on the House Agriculture Committee. I'll find exactly what he said. He told me uh, that Nebraska farmers wished they had the same access to the Biden team as this dark money group. And then I obviously you know, did the standard journalism um, craft, I guess, and emailed every single Democrat on the House Agriculture Committee asking if they had any sort of thoughts at all, concerns, questions, whatever, uh, about this coordination between Kessler and Vilsack. And I'm sure it will surprise you and your listeners to know that none of them got back to me. Unsurprising. That's usually how these preservationists operate. But I want to go back to your point about a good food and what it stands for. So you mentioned in terms of creating and facilitating the farming infrastructure to encourage the production of quote good food, you list that it is probably under or underpinning or underpinned rather by green friendly agriculture. Is um, this connection also kind of an extension of this kind of net zero policy we we see abroad? I don't know if you've paid attention, but uh, the Dutch are being paid to voluntarily force closure of their small and medium 
size ranching operations, farming operations. The Irish are soon probably going to be revolting against a proposal from their Department of Agriculture to cull 200,000 cows. I know those are extreme examples, um, but it's under the EU's, you know, Green New Deal. Do we see this program perhaps encouraging that type of extreme alternative? Um, Is this an extension? Is this what they're trying to push? They're trying to push agriculture to to move away from conventional practices into the so-called green-friendly agriculture, which ultimately would would put a lot of these operations out of practice i i would say that kessler and arabella and the general sort of green agriculture movement in america probably has no problem with what you're talking about happening in europe which is just totally unhinged and deranged and divorced from reality and anti-environment ultimately yes. policies right i don't know if that is directly uh, connected to these things. What I would say, going back to the iceberg analogy, if you look at Arabella, one of the things that it does is it creates tons of sort of trade names and front groups for pushing totally insane liberal policy in America. So I would look at this as more of kind of part and parcel for sure of the kind of totally insane policies of things. I would put this more in the um, kind of same mentality of banning gas stoves in America mentality for sure, because we know that groups connected to Arabella want these insane things. Uh, So I don't know if there's as much connection to the European kill all the cows to save the environment. I wouldn't Uh, say it's directly like that, but, but uh, John Kerry has been pushing kind of similar intonations. Um, Not saying it's tied to Europe. I want to correct myself there. Uh, but but we see that same kind of interest to radically transform agriculture. And I, wa- I wanted to know if the good food program was kind of emblematic. Not, of that. not necessarily, but I think that Europe is basically five to 15 years ahead of the American left on most things. Mm-hmm. And I would say that a lot of this is more broadly speaking, a lot of activists in America probably look at what you're talking about. You know, Germany basically having no energy anymore. And saying, oh, actually, this is what we want here. They're just a little bit more delayed on a timeline of that. Mm-hmm. I think the Good Food Initiative of Arabella is more geared towards um, changing agriculture practices to you know, be more green and environmentally friendly while actually enriching Kessler and uh, you know, Arabella than it is the more unhinged things that we're seeing in Europe. But you know, these people all communicate all the time. And I'm sure that there's, you know, fairly extensive admiration, if not collaboration between mm-hmm. all of those various people. Right. Yeah. And I, it, the gas stove issue, they wanted to dismiss that. And then there was that obvious connection. There was correspondence between who was it? Um, Richard Trumka's son, who's on yeah. that commission, uh, the product safety commission and uh, communication with some members of Congress. They, I think uh, Don Beyer, and a couple senators who we're all familiar with um, who are praising that kind of proposal. So, yeah, maybe your reporting is foreshadowing that kind of connection from coming out there even more. Well, I would say on that, the unfortunate thing here, kind of two parts, and we've talked about this in the past with Jen Granholm. I, I, I know it's obviously a cliche at this point, but, you know, if Sonny Perdue had been emailing with, you know, I don't even know what the counterpart on the right of Eric Kessler would be here. That would be a thing that people mm-hmm. would still know about. And oh, right. Absolutely. What, what if someone in the Trump administration or what if some if a Republican 
administration were doing this. It's a tired trope, but it is very accurate. And I think this animates a lot of the reporting that I do is, you know, we're just kind of the lone voices uh, talking about these things. And my friends, our friends at Newsbusters, when they were writing up sort of my take on this, they very accurately, in my mind, called this another Biden corruption scandal that the Nets won't touch. And it's unfortunate. And this is why, you know, to make this kind of a bigger point than just uh, about Tom Vilsack, this shows the media ecosystem that we're in is so corrupted. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is I did very extensive reporting in 2022, I think, or 2021, I don't remember, on how Democrats in Congress in D.C., had been using COVID as an excuse to not show up to work for two years. You know, I took all these pictures of um, his offices with newspapers piled up past my knee, and I'm fairly tall, uh, of them just literally never showing up. That has never been even acknowledged by any other outlet as reality. I then did a follow-up story on how uh, government constituent service offices around the country have also been closed for two years because of the pandemic never acknowledged elsewhere. So to me, as I think about, you know, why that, how that possibly could be the case, aren't journalists supposed to afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted? In reality, it's the total inverse. Journalists exist to cover up for specifically Democrats, not cover Democrats. And that is part of the reason why trust in media is plummeting, uh, sort of non-traditional media like podcasts like yours are growing. And, you know, we're kind of all the worse off for it that we have a press corps that is literally trained Democratic activists. And we just have to kind of navigate that reality. Now, that's kind of a, a bigger, more off-topic thought. But I think this Vilsack story is an example that proves that. I think, you know, as conservatives, we want to complain about the media being horrendously biased, and it is um, sometimes. But I always think it's better to be able to concretely point to not only what is covered, but also what is never covered. And Tom mm-hmm. Vilsack's very intimate email conversations with with the head of one of the most important Democratic dark money outside groups shows that. And it also kind of makes you wonder, what even is the point of electing Democrats, they don't do anything. They just outsource full policy to people like Eric Kessler. Why are we even electing, you know, Joe Schmo to Congress when their policy is just being dictated by the Biden White House, outsourcing it to people like Eric Kessler? Your point about, yeah, kind of media obfuscation of stories, it's really evident in this niche that I focus on, energy, conservation, environment. Right. Uh, There's no questioning of, can you really, truly, let's say, transition to so-called clean energy? There are a lot of faults with that. There are a lot of trade-offs. And actually, it may be worse for the environment to install these alternative type of structures in the name of phasing out fossil fuels. Um, And also, it's not very conservationist. So a lot of them I've noticed and observed. There are some outliers. I would say some people... Um, will very rarely. I, I've seen this a little bit more from E and E News. They they they're not perfect, but I, I like that they will cover more sides to the story. But some in the media in this ecosystem covering E and E issues, they will just toe the line and not question you know whether so called transition to clean energy is good. 
most of them do go along with, you know, we have to restructure our food policies. We have to forego eating red meat. We have to forego doing this or doing that. Um, we have to give up these conveniences to have, you know, cleaner electricity output. And they don't question it. They should be like what you're doing, calling into question, are these policies really feasible? What are the drawbacks? How much is it going to cost to move away from what works and, and the infrastructure already in place? And there's not an appetite to do it. Um, going off of the greater media ecosystem, unfortunately, which is why I've always appreciated your work when you've covered Jennifer Granholm more extensively. Maybe you'll cover her again soon. But in this report, I think people need to know what <laughs> these cabinet members are doing. And I remember last administration, they were always picking at uh, Trump's interior secretaries for having supposed nefarious connections to coal companies or Ryan Zinke's connections here and there. And he was ultimately cleared of ethics charges um, in his case, and Secretary Bernhardt uh, wasn't doing anything really to leverage his contacts. They were just trying to invent something, saying, well, his past connections uh, explain his current positions. And he wasn't selling off tracks of land to oil and gas companies. It was it was bizarre. So I had to like research more into that and be like, this is not actually happening. And 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 certainly, if there were corrupt people, they would ultimately be reprimanded. It wasn't perfect, by all means, in last administration, but we didn't see this type of coordination with third party Republican or conservative groups, I, I don't think they would, they would want to do that um, because you'd get so much scrutiny and also it's unethical to do it too. But whenever this happens, um, whether it was Obama administration or now, the media seemed to be silent, but reporters like you don't have any problem um, doing the dirty work, finding email correspondences and putting this out there for readers. Think about this also though, is there's not even curiosity amongst no. the or to look into the Biden admin. Let's pretend that nothing bad is happening. No one is even trying to confirm that nothing bad is happening because they just assume that nothing bad is happening because these are Democrats. And I think a great example of this is when Pete Buttigieg straight up left for paternity leave. No one noticed. He was gone. Months. We have specific Department of Transportation beat reporters who simply did not know because they don't work or did not care because they didn't want to report on how Buttigieg wasn't working. Think about that. Yeah, it happens in all different areas. And they're also very quiet about, I don't know if you've reported on this, you probably will dig in more into Secretary Holland, but her, I think she had a conflict of interest in stopping this recent oil and gas lease in Navajo country in New Mexico, her home state, oddly enough, the, the Navajo tribe wanted this oil and gas lease to be approved. The secretary of interior said no. And I believe it was due to objections from her daughter, who is an activist. Yeah. Her daughter is an unhinged activist who was involved with, uh, basically storming the department of interior. Yes. Yeah. And just again, to go back to that cliche, Imagine if David Bernhardt's kid was a it was an activist for oil and stormed the Department of Interior saying we need you, daddy, to uh, approve a pipeline. It's the complete inverse of this. And we know that would be basically international news overnight. But no one in whoever is on the Department of I know exactly what you're talking about. No one who is on the Department of Interior beat. Because all of these outlets have people dedicated to covering certain departments. I don't think anyone has done any kind of thing about that. It's totally insane. And this is a great way of looking at how 
people who are in journalism now just exist to run cover for Democrats. That is a totally unhinged, massive scandal, and it is flying almost entirely under the radar. That's the sad reality today. I would hope that some in mainstream sources will look beyond wanting to be comfortable, wanting to be invited to cocktail parties and getting accolades and what have you. Um, If you truly claim to be a journalist, you know, you have to be critical of the people you're covering. I liked a lot of the policies the last administration did, but I wasn't always a fangirl. I always kept my distance. And for certain things I didn't like, I would also make my voice heard about it say, I don't agree with this step or I don't agree with this bill that may be endorsed by the administration. You know, I always had some deviation and I was always be honest about like, I'm not comfortable with this or I like this and other people should fairly cover it. It's in the text. This is, there's nothing nefarious about what they're proposing. Um, So you, you could be objective even if you like certain things, but they're not curious to dig into different scandals, whether it's Department of Interior, this because they like the policies and they don't question it. Um, On conservation stuff, I've been covering a proposed rule Uh, They want to create non-uses for conservation leases, which goes against uh, a federal law relating to federal lands management, multiple use, sustained yield. And everyone is fine with this because they don't want grazing, oil and gas and other conventional practices to be prioritized and allowed on multiple use kind of sustained yield management um, guidance that is supposed to guide public lands. They only want clean energy. They only want certain things. And they're not honest about it. And they're not actually going to the law and saying the law says this. There's not really anything different except that it's creating non-uses. And that goes against what public land should be. And a non-use um, or, or a multiple use is not meaning that you're going to degrade the land. It could also mean for recreational purposes, you're hiking, biking, fishing, what have you. Um, it's not about just extractive industries. And so, yeah, they don't question the policies because a lot of them just support decarbonization. Um, They're not really questioning, you know, the whale situation. There's a lot of evidence pointing to uh, underwater sonar activity potentially impacting endangered North Atlantic right whales. Uh, The NOAA Fisheries, one of the the scientists there, put out a damning letter that said that you need to be very careful having a wholesale, you know, exploration of this because it could have an impact on whales. Even the government websites relating to whales and Clean energy have said that there are some level A and level B harassment. They don't, they, they're turning a blind eye to that. You should probably investigate that a little bit more too. Um, the whole whale situation and maybe try to That's get something on my radar and I will, I'll we can talk about that offline because yeah. I may I may know some people you could talk to. Um, and so that that needs to be uncovered more. What they're doing at Department of Commerce is pretty egregious, and they're doing a vessel rule to stop recreational boating for offshore activities as well to protect the whales. Yet they're harming the whales with offshore wind proposals as well. So it's very counterintuitive. Uh, we could talk about that more. But Foldy, um, what else is going to be on your radar soon? Can my listeners anticipate any more coverage? Are you going to go back to covering anything nefarious from Jennifer Granholm? You're going to stick with Vilsack. What can people look forward to soon from you? So I had to look this guy's name up because I forgot it. But during the Trump admin, The Washington Post had a journalist, David Farenthold, who has won Pulitzer Prizes for his reporting on literally just sitting at the Trump Hotel and like going through garbage. There's no curiosity from journalism and from journalists when a Democrat is in power. And it's one of the reasons that I became a journalist, because I realized after the 2020 election, when Democrats had full control of the country, that the press corps was just going to go on a two to four year vacation and someone's got to do their job for them. And I had no idea what I was doing. 
and have managed to find some pretty massive scandals because it's actually not that difficult, which is why the bias that we're talking about is so frustrating because sometimes crazy stuff is happening right in front of our eyes. And really, I think, you know, you and I show that you don't have to be a, uh, you know, credential journalist uh, to do actual journalism because pe- people need to do it. Right. Uh, so I'd say I have some big things coming up. I'm trying to really work my way through as many of the Biden departments as possible. I know that, uh, we've talked in the past about Jen Granholm and this company Proterra. So I'll give you guys just a quick update on that. And this is really why I think that's so important is because it is, kind of two big stories colliding in one, and it is the the unquestioned uh, transformation of our economy to, at times, incredibly unproven and sometimes dangerous technologies is, mm-hmm. is happening with no uh, real kind of scrutiny. And that's always bad, right? You know, everything, yep. you, know, you should always be skeptical at what the government is doing. And exactly. also then, so there's that sort of on the, technology, economy, environment side, and then also unquestioned corruption and self-dealing in a democratic administration, which is simply something that, as we've talked about today, is ignored and given free passes. And maybe we're told this is actually a good thing uh, when this is happening. So I wrote a a few months ago a, a big update on Proterra itself, its stock. I'll, I'll see what it's at right now. But the company at the time was totally flailing its stock had dro- yeah its stock is uh at $1.13 a share uh this is a company that has been heralded by the Biden administration by Biden himself by Kamala by Pete Buttigieg by Secretary Granholm by all of these people as being one of the best uh electric vehicle battery manufacturers but it's been plagued by technical difficulties by uh, supply chain problems, by inability for the batteries to last as long as they need to for, um, you know, these school bus routes that they take. It's been plagued by brake problems, all of these things. And this is, you know, to me now as, as this company is failing, this collides both the economy transformation story angle and the democratic corruption angle, because the first way that this initially had come on my radar was that Jen Granholm was still owning hundreds of thousands of shares in Proterra. I'm simplifying here. Before it went public, uh, she was trying to hold on, in my belief, to that for a couple more weeks uh, until it went public. And then she would have made you know generational wealth just by holding that stock. She was a former board member of it. But if it hadn't been for my reporting, she would have gotten away with it. I believe that this forced her to sell prior to Proterra debuting on the NASDAQ. Um, And now it turns out that this company that we've been told by every single top Democrat whose top executives have have been uh, afforded massive access to the Biden administration. Now it turns out it actually looks like an awful investment. And we see uh, school boards across the country pulling Proterra buses off the streets because they don't work. Um, So that's sort of the latest there. I have stuff. I've been doing actually a lot of China stuff recently because that's another 
area where we just see a complete dereliction of duty by most of the press corps. Obviously, that ties in a lot with um, the environment as well, because as we're trying to transform our economy, China is just emitting uh, pollutants like we've never seen in world history. And they're building more coal plants. (laughs) And and, And BlackRock is investing in them, all the while having ESG policies that say don't invest in American oil and gas companies, but it's okay to have 7.2% ownership in PetroChina. (laughs) It's it's an amazing... Hypocrisy is not strong enough of a word to, because there are serious consequences here. It's one thing to be like, well, you know, don't eat red meat while I eat a hamburger. But this is basically going, this this will destroy the American economy while enriching our greatest adversary. I mean, there, it, it's more it's more problematic than just being, oh, look at, you know, the left with their private jets while they want us all to, you know, walk from here to California. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that so... A lot on China recently. Um, I've been doing some stuff with the FTC. You know, I try and really focus on areas that go uncovered. <clears throat> you know, we just had this whole debt ceiling stuff, and that's kind of that will always stuff like that where it's as as we can see it. You know, dominated the news cycle in part because journalists are very dumb and kind of stripped it away to just being sort of a political horse race issue. Uh, and they're saying, who's up? Who's down with debt ceiling negotiations? Mm-hmm. And anytime there's something big like that, I tend to focus my efforts elsewhere just because, you know, what what am I going to add to that conversation when everyone is looking at it? Not as much as I can add to, um, you know, something like the energy department where my reporting can lead to massive congressional actions, more public awareness of these things, right? Like if I had never written about Jen Granholm and Proterra, I think it's not an exaggeration to say it never would have been written. I think that it's important for me and for journalists who just don't do this to focus on um, these sorts of areas where no one else is looking. That's where you can make the most impact. I think it's no exaggeration to say if I had not done the uh, reporting I've done on the Energy Department and Proterra, for example, it would never have been covered. I know for a fact if I had never done the reporting on how the government literally locked us out of the government and didn't work for two years, it would never have been reported. So there's a huge, um, massive yawning chasm for of topics begging for people to cover. And unfortunately, journalists are just not curious for the most part when Democrats are in office. You know, I look forward to these people suddenly rediscovering their passion for oversight and accountability as soon as Republicans take office, Um, which, again, cheapens the work that they do because they're just running cover for Democratic outside groups and not actually doing any of their own work. Um, But that's kind of where I see myself fitting in here. Now, in terms of other topics that we were saying, I'm doing a lot of stuff on China. I'm doing, you know, as we get back to the 2024 kind of grind, I'm doing more sort of just kind of interesting campaign reporting um and yeah trying to work my way through the biden admin department by department to see what's going on at uh i was saying earlier the ftc is what i'm looking at right now i'm trying to see if there's more on vilsack and arabella and kessler uh that i can do here i'm seeing i asked uh, a couple outside groups if there are any sort of formal actions they see uh this warranting because to me this looks like illegal lobbying but i'm not someone who is in a position to 
um, sort of levy that accusation in a formal manner. I'm just a humble journalist. Um, obviously always looking at the energy department. I don't have anything cooking on that right now, but, uh, I'll have some stuff on the new CDC director coming out soon. She's insane. Uh, horrible track record in North Carolina. Um, you got to look into commerce department. I, I mean, the commerce department is still, uh, under investigation because of the China reporting I did back yeah. in 2021. So, I mean, what, what more at commerce? I mean, the commerce in Wales, I definitely want to touch base with you. I, think I look at all of this and it, it's fertile ground for people who want to do reporting. And unfortunately that's, that doesn't exist on the left and on the right. Um, you know, the agriculture department does not drive tons of traffic, so it can basically do whatever it wants without anyone caring. And that's that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, Tom Vilsack is someone who during uh, one of the he was the tapped to be the head of supply chain crisis management or something like that earlier in the Biden administration. He blew off every single one of the meetings. You know, this is someone who doesn't want to do this job. As we see from that, this is someone who outsources the job, as we see from Arabella advisors, and yet no one cares. And it's very unfortunate because we know if Sonny Perdue had been sitting on a supply chain, chairing a supply chain crisis board and never showing up and outsourcing his policymaking to Exxon, it would be a big deal. It absolutely would. And it's not what abouting, but it's a common occurrence that we see. Like you said, the journalists go asleep when it's Democrats, and then they suddenly develop an interest to be watchdogs when it comes to Republican administrations. Not surprising, unfortunate, but maybe your reporting and the reporting of others. I would even put myself there, too, because I've been very loud about the whale stuff and other conservation stuff. Um, A handful of us who are sounding the alarm, maybe our reporting will inspire others to start to cover issues. Actually, one report I did on Idaho uh, and a proposed wind farm actually did get a lot of um, news nationally. We helped um, some of the interviewers that we we spoke to in Idaho. We helped them go on Jesse Waters and then uh, a big congressional hearing recently. And then the Washington Post didn't cite my coverage, but I know is, going off of the outrage, it was kind of implied that like, oh, we have to start covering this. So I was, I'm proud to say that a video that I did exposing this problematic wind farm uh, did kind of inspire. We we forced the news coverage there, even without yeah. proper credit. And that's exactly why it's still worth doing what we do. Yes. Is you never know where it will lead. You know, I I think of a lot of the reporting that I'm doing as I am leading the horse, whether that's other journalists, Congress, whatever, to mm-hmm. water. Can I make a drink? I try. I certainly try. But you got to at least, you know, you and I and people who want to see change, we have to do our part rather than just complaining. Exactly. Oh, you know, if only someone would look into this. Well, there's no reason why you, I, other people who, you know, are sort of frustrated by what's going on uh, in our country. And you see this, obviously, you know, to tie it to parents and school boards, you know, FOIAing them to see what the hell their kids are being taught. There's no reason why normal people can't do this also. Mm-hmm. And I think you and I show those kinds of people. Yeah, you can do this too. You can, you know, if nothing else, expose the craziness that is going on while Democrats run the country. Um, And then once it's exposed, if people don't act, then that's frustrating. But if, you know, you or I or people aren't doing that first step, maybe nothing will ever be done. And, you know, will something be done about what we've been talking about today? Maybe, probably not. 
But I at least know, all right, I'm doing my part to try and set these wheels into motion to see if there are consequences for, seems to me, abusing your office and giving preferential treatment to people who really should probably not be having that, while at the same time excluding the voices as Secretary of Agriculture who you should probably be listening to, like farmers in America. Yeah, you shouldn't be going to lobbyists who have nothing to do with agriculture. (laughs) A supposed lobbyist. But I'm saying you shouldn't be going to these shadowy figures and representatives when you should be beholden to, first and foremost, to farmers and ranchers. That's That's what what makes this crazy is he's not a lobbyist, but, you know, I I started my piece on this as, you know, if it walks like a lobbyist and talks, if it walks like an illegal lobbyist, (laughs) talks like an illegal lobbyist, it's probably an illegal lobbyist. And then hours after we published it, I wish I had said, if it walks like an illegal lobbyist and emails like an illegal lobbyist, it's probably an illegal lobbyist. So that is the first time I'm using that turn of phrase uh, exclusive to your listeners. But I think that's oh. kind of what's going on here. And maybe there will be more. I, I'm trying to do a follow up. I just have to, you know, this is kind of the horse to water. I'm leading these groups to water to see if any of them agree with me that this is highly questionable and problematic. Boldy, now that you've gone to The Spectator, could you defer my listeners to your writings at The Spectator and anywhere else that they should connect with you, follow you, and your musings? Well, yes, The Spectator. Uh, I also started a Substack for some very important news on the Congressional Softball League. Uh, <laughs> if anyone wants to learn about it. I've, I've exposed some serious pay-to-play stuff in D.C. softball. Um, but yeah, The Spectator is uh, where you will find me in my writings. And uh, if anyone has any tips or anything they want to uh, flag for me, I'm basically the most accessible journalist you can find. So just usually just find me on Twitter, shoot me a DM, let me know what's going on. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming back on the show, Foldy. And I will make sure everyone connects with you. You do excellent reporting. I wish more of our fellow media people would be so tactful and curious like you. And like you said, you have to just lead them to water, essentially. And and that's what will help with leading change or at least exposing and shining a light on very corrupt, nefarious things going on. So thank you again for coming on. And we hope to have you back on for any more reports. Awesome. Well, it's a pleasure as always. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.